So before we, um, before we just jump in, I just want to turn your attention to the screens first for a very brief video. <gasps> Don't do that, sweetheart. It's dangerous. No, no, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> well, go on. <laughs> yeah, but you're not going to do that again now, are you? I love that. It's a little dark. Let's watch that again. <laughs> Don't do that, sweetheart. It's dangerous. No, no, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> well, go on. <laughs> yeah, but you're not going to do that again now, are you? <laughs> Makes me laugh every single time. And it will come as no shock no pun intended, to those of you who know me best, that this was basically footage of my parenting style and raising four sons. Uh, you can just ask any of them. Uh, maybe that's why all four of them thrived in the military before college. And miraculously, that we were a hiking, camping, dawn dish soap with a sprinkler on the trampoline while all four jumped on the trampoline with no pads or netting. Uh, no bike helmets, but we had homemade bike drumps in the streets and in the dirt lot behind us. Uh, chopped firewood up with a hatchet while camping, beginning at the age of five. A high school wrestling family. And we raised four sons into manhood with only one broken bone and one set of stitches among all four. Which that alone is really all the proof you need that there is a benevolent God. In fact, I just kind of imagine God uh, just spending most of those years just kind of looking down and shaking his head. I just, you know, constantly having to turn to an angel going, oh, okay, you better get down there. Chad's being a dumb dad again. We've got to protect these boys. But the truth is, from a young age, we did our best. We did our best to teach our sons the rationales behind the things that we were trying to teach them. Because like most of us, if we understand the rationale behind something, we're much more likely to make the writer make the best choice, right? But like all of us, from time to time, they had to learn the hard way. In fact, for those of you who have raised children, besides dada, mama, and no, what's one of the first words a child picks up and repeats nonstop and it begins with a W? Why? Why? Why, mama? Why, mommy? Why, Daddy? Why? 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 And if you've raised children, there are times where we've told our children no or we've told them that they shouldn't, uh, but because they didn't understand the real why, because they just thought, even as a two- or three-year-old, you're just trying to prevent them from fulfilling a harmless desire, and they did it anyway, and they end up experiencing a painful lesson just like we've all done in our lives. And I think of one of the hardest things to deal with as a parent is when we feel like we've worked hard to set a great example for our kids to follow, and it is, in fact, a great example, but in the end, they don't get the why behind the what of our example. They go a different direction, a different course, and in the long run, they end up experiencing pain. And, and fortunately or unfortunately, all of us have a story like that where we made the choice to do something we were advised to not do or told not to do, where somebody said, wait, or you really shouldn't, or don't date him, or don't take on that debt, or you, you should never, or you should always. But we surveyed the circumstances, and this is what we thought. 
why in the world should I do that? Or why in the world should I not do that? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. And if you grew up in church or you've been a Christian for very long, I mean, you listen to preachers or pastors or you read the Bible, we'll bump into stuff like this all the time. Something that just seems so unrealistic or so old-fashioned or it just doesn't fit our culture and it just doesn't seem to fit with my life or my lifestyle or my work environment. And we, we think, you know, God, you know, I know it's in here, but you got to be kidding, right? Like, I mean, maybe in some ancient culture that might have worked, but in 2023 in my world, like, that doesn't work for me. And so consequently, if we don't understand the why behind what God has called us or asked, said for us to do, we just generally don't do it. I mean, maybe for some of you in the past weeks or in the past months that you sort of felt in your heart that God was nudging you in a certain direction or towards something or away from something or towards something or towards someone, a direction for your life, maybe to invest more into a relationship or to get out of one because it's not leading in a good or wise long-term direction, so he's nudging you. Or maybe he's nudging you to do something different financially, to be more generous, but you evaluate the circumstances and it just doesn't make sense to you. Or it's even scary. Maybe he's nudging you to do something different with your family or with your career. Or maybe you've heard or you've read about something going on in our community or going on in our world, and you sense God is calling you to do something about it. You just have this sense that God is nudging you in some area of your life, but you can't make sense of it, or how can this possibly even work out? And last week we discovered an important principle that ultimately God's ultimate goal is not for us to simply cooperate. His ultimate goal for us is not simply cooperation. If the only thing God was interested in was our cooperation and doing right things, lightning bolts would suffice, okay? Or just simply taking away our free will and making, making us like closed system robots. But from the very beginning, God has been after something more than that. And because of that, sometimes God is going to require us to do something and to do things where the why is totally unclear. But the point of this process, the point of this process is for us to learn to, and here's the key, because in every scenario that I just went through, the core of the issue is, is bigger than just understanding the why behind the what. It's trust. It's trusting him. It's in, and it's entrusting him and obeying him, especially when it doesn't make sense that something unexpected happens. We experience God. Our faith intersects with God's faithfulness. And at this intersection, we become far more aware of God in our life. It's like he is in my midst. He is alive. He becomes real to us and at, and at that point because God is not simply after your and my cooperation. He's after our affection. Our Heavenly Father sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins, not just simply to get us to obey him and behave right behave right, but so that we could have relationship with him. But the currency of any relationship is trust. So from time to time, God's going to call us to do things that don't make sense up front. But when that happens, I shared a phrase with you last week to just for you to bring to mind when this situation comes up each time, to understand why, submit and apply. In fact, for those of you that are parents, this would be a great phrase to begin repeating to your kids, to your children, because the be this is the best way to discover why. This is a principle that I've actually learned both ways. There have uh, been those times where I learned by submitting 
and applying, and in the end, I experienced God and good things, and I learned that that way is far better. But there have also been too many times where I sensed that God was calling me to do something or not do something, but it didn't make sense to me, or quite honestly, I just wanted to do what I wanted, when I wanted, with whom I wanted, how I wanted. So the bottom line is I just ignored God, or I just told him no. But immediately or sometime after, I discovered what a bad decision that it was to just not trust and obey God because of how it cost, cost me and almost every single time how it cost people that I love. So in my 55 years of life, I've learned that the best, least painful way to discover why behind God's calling or what he's asking you to do is to submit and apply. But sadly, this is still a lesson that I have to continue to relearn. I wish it wasn't true, but it is. So the story that we looked at last week was a story about a guy named Naaman. For those of you that weren't here, I just strongly encourage you to go home and read this for yourself. It's in 2 Kings chapter 5, because today we're going to look at another character in this story. Now Naaman, we introduced last week, he was a, a great pagan military leader from his, another country. I mean, he doesn't believe in the one true living God. He's got leprosy. But he comes to Israel in desperate hope that this so-called prophet can heal him. And Elisha doesn't even give him the courtesy of coming out to talk to him face to face. Instead, he sends a servant out of the hut to tell Naaman, hey, if you want to be healed of your leprosy, go down, dip seven times in the Jordan River. And Naaman, he thinks what all of us would think. That doesn't make any sense. That, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And he gets angry and he thinks, he's just trying to make a fool of me. But fortunately, Naaman's servants come to him and say, listen, what do you have to lose? You've got leprosy. Like the worst case scenario, you're going to be embarrassed, which is a side note for most of us is a non-starter if we fear that we might be embarrassed. But Naaman risks embarrassment. He goes down to the river and he dips seven times in the Jordan River and he comes out healed. And the best part of the story is that he comes out healed. The best part of the story is that he comes out and he knows God. He comes out and he says, now I know that there is no God in all of the world except in Israel. So bigger than the fact that my circumstances have changed, I'm changed. Naaman was changed because his little itty-bitty faith intersected with God's faithfulness. And he discovered in a very personal way, God. And if you were here last week, you know Naaman said, from now on, I'm worshiping your God alone. He is a changed man. He came to, to Israel to be healed of leprosy, but in the process, he met God. And that is what God is up to in your life and in mine. He wants you to know him in a personal, real, relational kind of way. And the way that God does that most times is by nudging us beyond our comfort zone to where we have to trust him. But once we take that step and trust him, and then he proves himself trustable, Something happens in here that you just won't anticipate. Now, there's a next part of this story. There was someone else in the background that's kind of behind the scenes, and he's watching this whole series of events. It was a servant of the prophet. His name was Gehazi. Now, you need to know that prophets were generally poor. So if you were the servant of a prophet, you're like poor, poor. Okay, like you're really poor. And when Naaman shows up to ask Elijah to heal him of his leprosy, uh, if you were here or you know the story, Naaman shows up, he's got chariots, he's got horses, he's got lots of fine clothes, and again, clothing was very, very expensive back then, hard to come by. He comes with millions of dollars in gold and silver, and naturally, when Gehazi th sees this, he's thinking, my struggle days are over. 
I mean, Elisha can heal him easily, and this guy's going to offer us, he's offering this reward. I mean, this is the day we have waited about. I am finally getting off the struggle bus. The day has come. And he begins to daydream about his good fortune and all that he's going to do and just being associated with Elisha and with his God. He's going to buy some vineyards. He's going to get some servants. He's going to get an olive grove. But while he's daydreaming, something unexpected and terrible happens. After Naaman is healed, he says to Elisha, let me reward you. Let me pay you like... Let me pay you for what you've done for me. And Elisha says, No, thank you. Naaman's like, No, no, really, let me reward you. I mean, you've healed me. I have my whole life back. Please take some gold and some silver and some clothing and let me reward you. But Elisha the prophet says, We're we're not going to let you give us anything. And Naaman and Gehazi are going, What? Gehazi's thinking, "What, What do you mean? He's not only an enemy, he's an enemy that leads enemies. His life was over, but he came to you. You healed him of leprosy. He met God. We've given him some of our dirt. His whole life is restored, and you're not going to let him reward us? That doesn't make any sense. God is trying to bless us. Even if some of this was stolen from the Israelites, it's coming back. It's coming to his people. So this is a good thing. I mean, Elisha, you're a prophet, and you can't see that God is doing something? This is from God? I mean, you can't let this guy go away and not accept some sort of payment. That's exactly what he does. 2 Kings 5, verse 19, Elisha said, go in peace, Elisha said. But after Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi said to the servant of Elisha, the man of God, uh, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought, as surely as the Lord lives, because clearly this is from God, and Elisha is making a huge mistake. So I'm going to run after him, and I'm going to get something from him. I mean, this can't possibly be God's will, because this doesn't make any sense. So thank God for me, because I'm going to step in, I'm going to fill the gap, I'm going to fix this. I mean, clearly, that's what God wants. So Gehazi slips out of the back, he charges over the hills, he catches up to Naaman, he says, oh, Naaman, my apologies, we've changed our mind. Now, here's where the story gets to get personally uncomfortable for me, because this is my tendency. Like, like I'm embarrassed I'm embarrassed at how many times in my life I have talked myself into doing the opposite of what I knew God wanted me to do. I'm just embarrassed at the times where I did things I knew he didn't want me to do or to not do things I knew he wanted me to do. In some ways, I just wish I could completely erase the memories of these times from my mind, these times in my life where God was clearly nudging me or clearly calling me in one direction, whether it was through scripture or a preacher or a pastor or a friend or something I saw or a book I read or something I heard that in my gut or my spirit, I knew what God wanted. But because it didn't make sense or because I didn't like it, it was basically, that's a great idea, God. But I tell you what, I've got another idea is if God is asking for suggestions. Like, like okay, uh, I've got a suggestion, God. Like, that, that's a great plan and all. But, you know, I've actually got a great plan B. If you'll just give me your attention for just a minute. minute. And, and when you think back, isn't it amazing 
the things that you've talked yourself into. In fact, you might right now be dealing with circumstances that you at one point talked yourself into. I mean, all of us are experts at this. I mean, very few of us would just pray this honest prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to let you know, I'm not going to do what you asked me to do. I just wanted you to know, in Jesus' name, amen. You've never prayed that prayer, and neither have I. But in our hearts, in, in our actions, that's exactly what we do. It's like, thank you, God, for the suggestion, but no. No. No, Father. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this instead. And we convince ourselves that God's going, oh, that's a much better idea. Thank me for you, right? Like, God, I have needs and strong desires to listen. I'm going to go ahead and sleep with him or sleep with her and maybe move in together. And, and it's okay because we're going to have a Christian relationship. We'll even go to church and obviously believe in you. And I think you'll agree that's a much better plan. Or God, I'm not going to stay in this marriage because this marriage is dead, dead, dead. And I know you want me to stay in the marriage, but I'm not. But, but God, I got a great plan B. Check this out. See, I'm going to get out of this marriage, but then I'm going to get into another marriage, and I'm going to make sure it's a Christian home, and he or she will just love me the way that I need to be loved and be sensitive to what I need. And God's going, I never thought of that. That is a better idea. Or give. Give 10%, give more, give generously. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do that, God. Like, I've worked, I've worked hard for all this, but God, the great news is i got a great plan B. I'm going to do what I want or what I think is best with the money that you've entrusted to me. And if I've got some left over, I'll give some. Or serve. I mean, you want me to serve? You want me to come in earlier on a Sunday? You want me to serve others during the week in my busy life? I'd rather give. Or you want me to love this person the way you love me? Yeah, God, I'm not going to do that. But I tell you what, I will pray for them. How about that? I mean, isn't this true? I mean, we rarely just look at God and be honest. Dear Heavenly Father, no. What else you got? Instead, we just compromise, or sometimes we stall. But maybe one of the best things we do is just have a moment of honesty and to go ahead and say what our actions sometimes show that we actually believe. God, you're smart, but you're not as smart as I am. I mean, I know you created the universe at all, but you don't understand what it's like to be a teen or a young adult in Wichita, Kansas. You don't know what it's like to be single in this city. I mean, God, you apparently aren't aware that Wichita was rated as the second worst city in the U.S. to be single in. It was beat out by Louisville and Detroit. God, you clearly didn't know that. Or God, you've never been married to her. Or you don't have to live with him and all his junk. You don't understand my parents or my in-laws. Or God, you just, you don't understand the financial pressure that I feel and how much work and time and thought and strategy that I put into accumulating what I have. Like, God, I know better. My plan is better. So you're smart. But God, you're not as smart as I am. God, I know my life, my world, and the world better than you, so Heavenly Father, no. Now, when I say that out loud, it just sounds ludicrous, but it's what we can tend to do. 
And we get in these back and forth things with God. It demonstrates an incredible point of confusion. And, and this, it's just, this confusion is, is so subtle, and, and we don't even realize it when most of us go through these scenarios with God, and we, we never realize what we're confused about. So I'm going to try and illustrate this um, in, in a risky way. So uh, do I have a gentleman that has cash in his pocket? Any amount of cash. Like a dollar, a 20. Okay, so you, you got cash. So just stay right there. You don't need to, you need to pull it out. So actually... Um, I'm just going to ask the two of you, uh, the Barnes couple back here, I won't make you come up here. Um, if I were to say it to both of you, and then, do you have something on your left hand? Yeah, a ring? Okay, all right, very good. So, um, Will, if I were to say to you, if you give me whatever's in your pocket, I'll give you whatever's in my pocket, and I promise you, you will be better off. What are the odds that you would make that trade? Pretty good? Okay. All right. And Jaina, if I said to you, if you will give me your ring, I'll give you what's in my pocket, and you'll be better off, would you make that trade? Say no. <laughs> Should have asked Angie. See, here's the thing. When it comes to God, and he's wanting to make this exchange with us, what's the point, core point of tension? Trust. Is, you know, in this scenario, the question is, am I trustworthy enough that if I say, like, if you'll give me what you have, what I give you, you're going to be better off? The question comes down to, does the individual trust me enough that that's true? That that's what will happen? That's a core point of tension. And so God says, I would like you to give me that relationship, to give me your relationship. And I'll give you what's in my pocket. I want you to give me your career. And I'll give you what's in my pocket. I would like you to entrust your financial world and give it to me, and I'll give you what's in my pocket. But what happens is, when this happens, God begins to ask him to entrust things to him, to entrust our life to him, our relationships, our emotion, our sexual expression, our finances, our marriage, our children, our family, our future, our career, our plans, all of our stuff. Our focus immediately goes where? What's in our hand? What we have? Okay, we go to look at what, how valuable what it is that we have in our hand. We look at God like, you, you want me to give you what? And some situations go like, you got to be kidding me. Like, what's in my hand is too, too valuable. Like, you would want me to walk away from like a whole career to pursue this? And God's going, what, what does it got to do with anything? Like, I, I'm the God of the universe. I'm your heavenly father who can be perfectly and always trusted. So your sense of value isn't the issue. The issue is, can I be trusted? See, when I was 19, and God broke out of the little box that I had kept him in, and he became so much bigger, and I surrendered my life to Christ, I was very serious about it. And so part of it was like, God, everything I have, everything I have is yours. Now, 
everything I had as a 19-year-old amounted to like a 10-year-old Nissan, a boombox that I bought in Australia that you couldn't plug in in the United States. Uh, I think I had like 50 bucks in my pocket or in the bank. Uh, I had bouncing checks that week. Uh, I had some clothing in my locker on the ship, but like everything I have is yours, God. But which doesn't seem like much now, but as a broke 19-year-old living on his own, like I, it was a lot. But now as a 55-year-old who spent most of his life, especially raising four children, living check to check to support a wife and kids, and kids that now live on both coasts, and now a granddaughter lives 1,700 miles away with aging parents and a mortgage and all that stuff, it's much more difficult to just say, God, everything I have is yours. Because God... I have desires. I have things that I want. Like I'd love for at least my wife to be able to retire someday. And honestly, flying, especially these days, flying to see our children isn't cheap. And what if we need to support some of our aging parents? And, you know, we're kind of in the final third or maybe even the final quarter, we don't know, of of our life. And there are things that we're going to want and need, and we don't know what to to expect. And, you know, God, I'm going to have to work until my final breath to be able to make sure we can survive. And, And what's the issue? my trust. And I think of all the other ways over the years of following Jesus relationally with, with people in my life or with career and, and time and so many times that God was calling me to do something that just made no sense. But part of the tension is because connected to it every time there was an element of risk and sacrifice. And every single time the issue boiled down to this, can God be trusted? God is saying, do you want to know me? Do you really want to know me? Do do you really believe that you're smarter than I am? Do you really think that you're better at managing all the stuff and the relationships that I gave you in the first place? I mean, where do you think it all came from? So back to our story, Gehazi heads down the road. He finds Naaman because he's got a better plan. Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running towards him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked? Everything's all right, Gehazi said. My master, my master sent me to you to say, um, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come from the hill country of Ephraim. So please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. Well, by all means, take two talents. He urged Gehazi to accept them, and he tied up two talents of silver to these two, in two bags and two sets of clothing. And he gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things for the servants, and he put them away in the house, and then he sent the men away, and they left, and when he went in and stood before his master. So he, he runs up to Naaman and says, hey, so right after you left, like, these guys showed up, and they need clothes and silver, and he makes up this story about how they need some, and Naaman's like, absolutely, like, here, just take whatever you want, and he loads it up on Naaman's servant, and he gets back to the house, and so they come to this hill, and it's a hill where you can look down, and you see Elisha's house, which is more of a hut. And Gazi says, okay, guys, I'll just go ahead and take it from here. Let's unload it. And so he's got like 85 pounds of silver, so he's got to make like a couple of trips. And he sneaks all this stuff down in the house, and he's thinking, I saved the day. Am I smart or what? Elisha's plan, I mean, God's plan, like that, that made no sense at all. So because I'm smarter, I came up with a great plan B, and now I'm going to be able to get all the stuff that I've never been able to get before. But there was something that Gehazi didn't understand that he was about to discover in a very painful way, and he makes a second very foolish decision. Elisha asked him, 
Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. Now, how smart is it to lie to a man who can send someone with leprosy down to a river to dip seven times and be healed? I'll answer it for all of us. That's dumb. Like, it's really dumb, right? Like, seriously, what a maroon. Okay, so I'll ask another question. How smart is it for me, and how smart is it for you to argue with the God of the universe about your morality, or your relationships, or money, or whom you date? I mean, how smart is it to argue with the God of the universe about how you treat your wife, or how you treat your husband? And we go, but God, but God. I mean, for those of you who are raising or have raised kids, I mean, how many times have your kids said, but dad, but mom, to essentially question your intelligence, insight, and relevance? And how many times have you looked at your children and just gone, you know, you're absolutely right. Thank you for your wealth and insight and life experience. Let's go with your plan. No, we don't do that. It's like, seriously? Okay. I'm the adult. I'm bigger than you. I'm older than you. Like, I was you, okay? Like, I knew all the buts before you butted me, all right? So just... But this is what we do to our Heavenly Father. Now, for some of you, maybe the term Father doesn't produce or procure the most positive images. So what you have to envision is the perfection of Father. What would the perfect Father do, say, ask of you? Everything a good father would be, perfect love, perfect wisdom, who knows you better than you know yourself, who wants nothing but the best for you. How smart of it is, is it to argue with him? Gehazi says, your servant didn't go anywhere. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Gehazi's heart starts beating fast. And here's the key, don't miss this. Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female servants? Here's his point. Gehazi, who healed Naaman? Well, God did. Yeah, so why should we accept payment for something that God did? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it wasn't you. It wasn't me. I didn't even come out like wave my arm or anything. In fact, I didn't even come out and talk to him. That's why I had you come out and send him down to that silly river so that everyone would know that it wasn't me and it wasn't you. It was God. I went out of my way to demonstrate the fact that I wasn't the one that healed him. It was God. That's why Naaman met God. So Gehazi, should we be paid for something that God did? No. But now you've messed all that up because it didn't make sense to you. And rather than trust God and trust me as a servant, you took matters into your own hands. So now now, Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. And then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous because it it had become white as snow. Now here's what most of us already know that most of us figure out on forget on a daily basis, that there are two ways to discover why God says what he says and to discover why God asks what he asks of us. You can submit and apply and experience eventual joy, or you can take matters into your own hands and live with a sense of regret. And at the end of the day, we all figure this out eventually. And it will either be, oh, so that's why 
I am so glad. I'm so glad I trusted God. Or it's going to be, oh, so that's why. If only I had trusted God. In fact, Jesus and the New Testament writers make it clear that the day will eventually come in the end where everyone, everyone will know, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you know what that means? It means that at the end of time, believers, unbelievers, skeptics, atheists, those who I used to believe, but somewhere, you know, something didn't make sense to me, like if there's a good God, why bad things, and does he allow them to happen? That just doesn't make sense to me, so I just decided I couldn't believe, so I quit believing. And you know who else felt that way? Like, I'm just stating a fact, Judas. Like the way of Jesus, like the approach of Jesus, that he was taking this whole servant of all and dying for the world and raising from the dead, it just didn't make sense to, to Judas, so he came up with a great plan B. Jesus just needed to be put in a position where he would be forced, you know, to finally show himself for who he was and to rise up and put, put in a position where he would have to raise the army and put it together and wipe the Romans from the face of the earth. And Judas thought, I am so smart, if I get him arrested, that'll be the thing that ignites the fire and the spark, but how wrong he was. Or the Apostle Paul, as many of you know, he steps onto the pages as like one, a one-man wrecking machine, hell-bent on destroying the Jesus movement, destroying the way, because it made no sense to him. He had Jesus followers in prison and executed in the most violent of ways, because even though his own sacred text predicted that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would have to suffer and die at the hands of men, it made no sense to him. In fact, I want to share something with you. I don't usually do this, but this is so amazing. And because I want to inspire all of you to read your Bibles on a regular basis, especially the New Testament. But there's a prophecy that's written 750 years before Jesus. So around 778, 732 BC, it's the prophet Isaiah. And he's writing about the future Messiah. And Paul, as a top of his class Pharisee, he would have memorized this as a child, every word of this. And as I read this full chapter to you, especially if you've ever read or, uh, or you've had read to you the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I just, as you listen, I just want you to ask yourself, who does this sound, sound like? He writes, who has believed our message? And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In fact, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and yet as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, 
and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will be will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Who does that sound like? written 750 years before the events transpired. I'm telling you, you should read your Bible. And what I just read to you was part of Paul's most sacred text, and he would have memorized this as a boy, but part of the problem is it did not make sense to him. That can't possibly be what God intends. So Paul takes matters into his own hands. He tries to destroy this movement until the day he crosses paths with a resurrected Jesus and is literally knocked off his horse. And Paul fortunately he is given a second chance, and he becomes the greatest evangelist and church plant, planter the earth has ever known. And not long after, he would write or dictate these words, that the day is coming where every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is everything he ever claimed to be, God's Son and Lord of all. In other words, the day is coming where everyone, as Paul writes, on earth and under the earth, meaning the soul never dies. We all live forever somewhere. The day is coming where we will all recognize Jesus for who he always claimed to be. And in that moment, for some of us, it's going to be a moment of unimaginable joy because we trusted him even when it didn't make sense. However, for others, it's going to be a moment of unimaginable regret because since I couldn't understand, I couldn't follow. I didn't get it, so I turned my back. And the tragedy of that moment is that the time for choosing will be over. The opportunity to follow will have passed. And one's eternal destiny will have been decided. So here's where we're going to pick up next week. Do you sense what God wants you to do? And are you making the mistake that we've all made of one point or another of confusing the value of what's in our hand for what's really at stake? The value of what God is asking for is not the issue. The issue is can God be trusted? And when we trust him, he shows himself trustable. And in that moment, we know him. But when we choose to be like Gehazi and decide that we're smarter than God, there's always consequences. And we figure out that God is trustworthy, but with pain, with consequences. So I'll just close with this question. What are you arguing with God about? What is it that you're trying to convince yourself about, to convince yourself it's okay to say no to God? because you've got a better plan B. I advise against it. What is God calling you to do that you don't want to do? And I just want to urge you, trust Him. Take that step. Follow. Obey. 
as scary as it might be, and then watch and see all that he wants to do through you, for you, to reveal himself and for you to know him like maybe you've never known him before. Let me pray for us. Father, easy to say, hard to do. And so, Father, I I pray for all of us in this room, those who are listening, that your spirit would help us with this because, Father, left to ourselves, we can't do it. Hundreds of years of Jewish history show that just trying to keep a law, it just can't be done. This isn't a whole other set of rules. You're inviting us into a relationship. But it's scary. So, Father, I pray for every one of us who knows that area or that areas where you have been patiently, patiently working to nudge us and lead us and for fear or unwillingness or why we've been resisting. And I pray, Father, that you would, as gently as you can, break down those, those resistances and that, Father, that you would give us the courage to trust you. And, Father, I pray for everyone that makes that decision, that has the courage to do it, that you would show yourself in an unmistakable way as quickly as possible so that when the next time comes, Father, that they'll know you better and trust you better. I pray that for all of us in this constant lesson of learning to trust you in this broken, dark world. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.